my view and the view of lots of the scholars apart from these Indonesian ones is that cryptocurrency is in principle permissible because it's a digital asset. There isn't that level of ambiguity or gharar or uncertainty or gambling going on. And as a result of that, Muslims can and should potentially consider cryptocurrency as an investment. I actually think the bigger issue here is a macro one, which is cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and blockchain technology, in my view, is one of the key technologies that's going to shape this next decade. And my worry is that you have scholars who opine things like this in the same way that scholars opine things like TV is haram back in the day or pictures are haram back in the day or mics in the masjid are haram back in the day you know, you're not allowed to go on YouTube scholars have said things like this coffee was over, haram at one point coffee was haram right so over the centuries and over the last few decades we have seen scholars very sincere intent get it wrong on these uh, novel technological changes where that comes from is probably a lack of being technologically conversant with what it is that they're opining on Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh everyone and welcome to another episode of the IFG News Roundup with myself as your host Khidr Muhammad, the community leader IFG, as well as Ibrahim Khan, co-founders and Muhammad Al-Talaib, our investment associate. Today we've got some very controversial stories for you, some of which you'll find very interesting, some of which you might skip ahead on, but I think you won't. So let's get cracking to it. Muhammad, what have you got? Yeah, so some good news to start the morning off. The national living wage is set to increase by a good few percentage points. So the national living wage in London is set to increase by 20 pence from about £10.45 to £11.05. And the national living wage is set to increase by 40 pence, so a bit more, from £9.50 to £9.90. Now, that's some excellent news for about 300,000 workers who are set to get an increase in their wages and in their salaries. And I mean, you know, all around some, you know, some positive news to start the day. On the other end, though, inflation is rising, which means that the cost of everyday goods and services is also increasing. So, you know, will the increase in wages match the, the increase in costs? You know, yet to see. Fuel has increased significantly. Gas prices are set to increase. And obviously, you know, with Brexit, the food shortages, etc., all set to increase. What this is, though, is that this is the national living wage. So this one is recommended. This is not the mandatory minimum. That is, however, set to increase as well. Not yet, but next year in April. Okay. Set to increase from £8.91, I believe, to about £9.50. So that's also a good 60p increase there. So, you know, now the national minimum wage will be the previous recommended living wage. So all around, I think, positive news, actually. What are your guys' thoughts on sort of the minimum wage, national minimum wage, living wage? Do you think there should be a difference between the living wage and the minimum wage? I'm interested to understand who sets the national living wage. Is it like some kind of So I'm NGO? not too sure, but I do know they have the National Living Wage Foundation. <laughs> so I think it's kind of, sort of um, recommended policymakers who kind of estimate the cost of living around the UK and try to keep up the living wage alongside <clears throat> the actual cost of living. I think what it does is basically it's very difficult to make a mandatory change to the minimum wage because obviously employers are going to uh, you know, kick up a fuss. But if you have a recommended one, it allows you to keep up a lot easier. And then the minimum wage kind of can't stay too below that because obviously it's almost like saying that we're paying you less than you can to survive. I think this is quite interesting, right? I mean, we've known for a long time that inflation has been rising, but wages have not been rising to meet that. Now, I might say something a bit more controversial, but I'm looking at it from economist perspective, just through some articles that I've read. 
and you guys can call me out on this if you think I'm wrong. If there's inflation and you increase the minimum wage or the recommended minimum wage and people are having more money that they can essentially use, aren't you just further increasing inflation and then kind of ending up in an endless cycle of mm-hmm. more inflation, more wages? No, not necessarily. So obviously, if you increase, so the wage is just one component of the cost of a good. If you're breaking like, I don't know, glass, for example, obviously the workers who help manufacture their glass is one cost but the cost of the raw materials should technically stay the same. And so the increase in wage technically should increase inflation, by, but not by the same rate. So that means that the spending power is now more spread to the everyday worker as compared to perhaps you know, the owner of the, of the factory, the, the capitalist, and hopefully he can you know, now afford a better living. And so the distribution of wealth is a bit more equal. At least that in theory is what it should happen. But we do know that the costs of materials are rising as well because of all the stuff that's going on with China and, you know, shipping and everything. That's why I think they've raised it, because the cost of goods has gone up so much that it started to become unaffordable for people. Honestly, I think slightly pessimistically, I think that the ordinary man is the one who, especially with, again, sorry to say, the Conservative Party, when they're in power in particular, that's where the money comes from. And you've seen that in the taxation changes as well with national insurance and others, where the people who get hit the most are often those who are the most voiceless and not the ones who are lobbying away. And in this situation, of course, the wages have gone up. But as Mohammed, you said, it's a national advisory living wage as opposed to the minimum wage. And employers aren't going to change that if they don't need to. And employers as well, they're going to make sure that they increase the costs to reflect the fact that they have to pay more. But where does that additional margin go? I suspect that additional margin is more than likely the majority of it is going to go with the business as opposed to with employees. Yeah. So it's pessimistic worldview. Yeah. Or maybe we need... Um, Socialism. It is quite sad to say that the, the, the average, you know, they call it working poverty, where people like, you know, social care workers and construction workers and you know, restaurant waiters are working their lives, but they're unable to sort of survive. The median salary in the UK is about £31,000. In London, it's about £41,000. If you say somebody who's working at that median salary for a good portion of his life, they'll be unable to afford a house, basic right to own a property. If that is what the life of millions of people are going to be, it's not to equate it to, to slavery, <laughs> but you know, it's, it's kind of working your life to survive and pay off check after check. I think that there's a lot of analogies, weirdly, with slavery here, because you've got this system in London where the Chinese, Russians and Arab money has come in and bumped up the prices and made London this relatively unaffordable place to live. But in order to, for these Russian, Chinese and Arab, the wealthy middle class in the UK, to use London, they need to make sure that the masses are not restive. The masses are kept quiet. And the way you do that is by having a minimum kind of bandage approach to the social welfare state, which is what we are seeing. As long as people are happy, as long as people aren't rising up, they won't go above and beyond. Yeah. It's just to pacify <coughs> the mass. I think the situation is getting worse and worse, and we will see people start to become more exacerbated in this effect. Like we know that for a fact rents are rising. Yeah. Um, there was an article in the BBC about that the other day and that there, what, uh, was it like 6% or something? Yeah, rise off about rising uh, salaries or rising uh, you know, a living wage by that few p an hour. But rents are drastically increasing. Increased the highest amount in the past 13 years since 2008, which is, I, was, I was quite shocked to hear actually. And surprise, the rent rises have not happened, well, it's happened in London, but more so outside of London. 
Southwest affected the most. Coastal town of Dorset, which increased by 16% in rental prices. How much? 16? 16, 16, 1.6. I mean, that's a huge increase in, in a rental price. But you know, the rest of the UK, I think on average, it increased by 4%. Uh, up in the Midlands, by about 6%. These are drastic increases. If you consider that already half your wage is going toward, uh, towards rental, a 6% increase there, that's a good few hundred to a few thousand pounds that you could have spent on your kids' clothes, on holiday that you take the year. And now that's going towards your landlord. With, to be honest, to him, he's not really incurred that many more expenses. And so there it goes again, capital owners benefiting and the working poverty class just suffering more. If you know, anything to take out of this, I would say, uh, you know, invest your money and start owning some capital because your salary is not going to cut it. Agreed. Own your capital and be assertive about your rights because no one else is going to be. And if you're someone who doesn't vote, if you're someone who's not part of the national discourse, if you're someone who doesn't really get involved in all of this stuff, if you're someone who's more focused on sports but not politics, then that could be a reason why your salary is the way it is. And it's not an individual's fault. It's all of our faults. We should all be involved and be much, much more active and vocal about this. And I think we as Muslims in particular, we're not. We should be. 100%. Yeah, I think when it it comes to involvement, you know, don't worry about even the national level or getting involved in big politics. It's all about the community levels. If you're just in your local council and you just get a bit more involved, that trickles up towards the top. And that's the, the extent of how you should be involved, at least I would say. Definitely. Well, let's move on to the next story now. Ibrahim, what's been going on in the Muslim community lately? You mean Azim Rafiq, the, the yeah. Yorkshire County Career Club scandal? Yeah, I think it's an incredible story. Azim Rafiq is a cricketer, or was a cricketer, for Yorkshire County Cricket Club, which is one of the largest and oldest cricket clubs in the world, really. And he's accused them of racism, and those accusations have been upheld. And he was giving testimony, I think it was yesterday, in Parliament under something called parliamentary privilege, which means that he can't be sued or nothing can happen to him as a result of what he says. So a lot of things were discussed very openly for the first time. And Guy is now on the front page news on the BBC, on all all the newspapers. An incredible result after years of him struggling to get anywhere. And, you know, I used to play cricket as a teenager I used to play at a county level I wouldn't actually be surprised if I actually played against Azim Rafiq at some point I'm not saying I did but we at least played against Yorkshire a few times and I completely see where he's coming from about this institutional racism I can see how someone like Michael Vaughan may have said something like there's too many of you lot out there we need to do something about it as a joke in that kind of environment and he doesn't remember it, but the three guys he said it to, Adil Rashid, who now plays for England, Azim Rafiq and Rana Navid, who, used to, who plays for, who used to play for Pakistan, they all remember it. I think that's a classic example of this. Or David Lloyd, another very famous ex-cricketer, he said how Asians, they don't spend the clubhouse or the bar is the heart of the cricket club, the lifeblood of the cricket club, and Asians don't go in there, so what do you expect? That was a kind of derogatory comment. So it's true and it highlights the problem. It's a massive culture clash and the power dynamics reside in a place where Muslims and Asians aren't particularly A, welcome or B, able to access. Having said all of that, by the way, like my personal experience in cricket was really positive. 
But I can definitely see this like institutional racism. It's not just even related to cricket. And this is why I thought it'd be great to talk about it here mm. because it's related to your workplace. It's related to your university. I remember when I went to a play at Oxford one time and then in the recess, we essentially found this shed somewhere in the interval we had to do Maghrib and there was something called creosote all over the floor which I didn't realise there is institutional racism and the more insidious forms of it are those forms where it's not like straight in your face obvious like some of the stuff Azim had and that's the thing that needs to be rooted out and we all have that duty to do that in our own workplaces and what have you what are your thoughts? Really, really positive story. I think I read like also the claims I was able to make. I think there was financial compensation, but then also compensation towards the mental health charity of his choice. They set up a bursary for disadvantaged children to get into cricket as a sport. So I know there's an unreserved apology towards it. So I was you know, very, very happy with the outcome. It also shows you know, how far the UK has come and how actually lucky we are to live in, in a country that's so welcoming from completely different people from different backgrounds and nations. I'm from South Africa, I had apartheid just a few years ago, 1994 is when it ended, and that was, you know, very, very clear segregation between races. And today we've come to the point where subtle forms or, you know, the more or less obvious um, forms of racism are being kind of weeded out. So we're very lucky to be here, and I think as, as Muslims we should appreciate that and, you know, obviously make sure we're not racist ourselves and give back to the country. I definitely echo those sentiments. I think that when you think about just 100 years ago where Britain was as a country where it was still an empire to some extent, and well, a failing empire, but it was still an empire and that supremacist mindset was very much there that had dominated the cultures. I mean, we already know the kind of stuff that Winston Churchill said, and this was just mid-90s, right? Like uh, 1900s, so 1950s. That was the kind of attitude that our fathers and grandfathers kind of faced. But now we're seeing a transition into a more multicultural and a more accepting Britain. And a great example for that is like the fact that you can go to to the government and you can actually sue them and you can say to them that what you said was wrong and this is why it was wrong. A classic case is, or a recent case is Dr. Salman Butt from Islam 21C winning against the Home Office for being accused of being an extremist. And because I agree with you on, on that, we've made progress, but I think the real progress is when you know, Dr. Salman doesn't have that said to him in the first place or he is actually Preeti Patel. Do you see what I'm saying? True. If you and you might think, oh, hang on, Preeti Patel is is Asian, you know, in position of power, or Sajid Javed and others in positions of power. I think they've had to compromise heavily. Cool. And maybe think about the groups that you have at university, and those groups that did particularly well. They were usually the middle class, upper class groups from certain backgrounds. I mean, I know from Oxford, it was very specific kind of private school backgrounds usually, and playing sports like rugby and other other sports like that. For me, I was relatively like on talking terms and friends with them and you meet them through cricket and sports. Because you don't drink, you're not from that background, you're a Muslim who doesn't do certain things, you're never going to be completely accepted. And I think that is the, this insidious racism that still exists. Is that racism, though? Because Sorry, like, not a racism. On the flip side, I mean, like, you know, if you are somebody who is not Muslim and you do drink, for example, would you be accepted at the ISOC where everybody prays and everybody's, you know, I mean, it, it does go both ways. And it is like, you know, you can't like completely make it. I mean, I guess you want to make it as accepting as possible where if there is something, there's always options for other people who don't do certain cultural activities. It's true. Yeah, like you're right. What we can't demand and I don't think is fair to demand is for what we can't demand and it's not fair to demand is for us to say look this is the mainstream culture change it for us i think you're right right about that 
But let's look at the implications of that. Those little micro things add up to result in pretty much no black or brown people at the top level of the FTSE 100 C-level companies. Or what happened in Yorkshire, where you've got this... Adil Rashid is the one Asian, I think, now on the actual professional team, when the entire region, I mean, the club itself, is based in the heart of an Asian area. And all of the Asians in the local parks, they play cricket, but they're not in the club. There's a disconnect here. And this is a problem, I think, with an institutional race. It starts off with innocent and people just doing their thing. But I actually think the majority group needs to do much, much more in order to accommodate from the minority communities, because if they don't do that, then you're going to get things like this happening. I think it is a very subtle and slow process. As much as we'd like that to speed up and as much as we'd want that to happen very quickly so that we can be accommodated for, our children can be accommodated for, we and our children have the best possible opportunities, I do also understand that these same people have been brought up in a very different context and see the world in a very different light. And for them to start changing mentalities is difficult. So... I do agree it needs to happen and it needs to be pushed, but hopefully the rate that at which it happens is a steady upward increase. This latest story with the cricketer demonstrates that, that it's going in a good place at least. Agreed. So moving on to our next story, and here's a controversial bit. <laughs> so Indonesia's top Islamic body, the National Ulama Council, has declared the trading of cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum haram by Sharia law. They said it includes elements like uncertainty, wagering, and harm. Now, we've heard these kind of comments before, Ibrahim, by a few other scholars. This, I think, is the first big body or national body of scholars that has come out and made such a ruling. What are your initial thoughts on it? I've not read the ruling in particular, so I need to do that. And it may be that the comment they might have made is that in general, you know, cryptocurrencies can be haram. I think it's much more emphatic than that from all the reporting, but perhaps there's a bit of leeway. And obviously, one should be respectful of scholars to the extent that you know they have hopefully gone through an appropriate process in coming to their view. Now, I would respectfully disagree with that. And my view and the view of lots of the scholars, apart from these Indonesian ones, is that cryptocurrency is in principle permissible because it's a digital asset. There isn't that level of ambiguity or ghadar or uncertainty or gambling going on. And as a result of that, Muslims can and should potentially consider cryptocurrency as an investment. I actually think the bigger issue here is a macro one, which is cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and blockchain technology, in my view, is one of the key technologies that's going to shape this next decade. And my worry is that you have scholars who opine things like this in the same way that scholars opine things like TV is haram back in the day or pictures are haram back in the day or mics in the masjid are haram back in the day. You're not allowed to go on YouTube. Scholars have said things like this. Coffee was haram at one point. Coffee was haram, right? So over the centuries and over the last few decades, we have seen scholars, very sincere intent, get it wrong on these uh, novel technological changes. Where that comes from is probably a lack of being technologically conversant with 
what it is that they're opining on. I run a tech startup, right? And even I don't feel like I'm fully technologically conversant as someone who codes in those languages that allow you to code in in blockchain. And if that's my perspective, I strongly, strongly suspect that none of the scholars who opine on this probably have anywhere near the level of technical expertise that they perhaps need in order to opine on it. So final thing to say is, the cat is out of the bag. Uh, the Indonesians, the most popular, I was talking to a startup that's actually setting up a cryptocurrency exchange in the Far East right now. And he said that asset class that is the most popular with Indonesians right now is cryptocurrency. Yeah. And in places like Malaysia, Pakistan, India, where some of these places where it's banned, this is a hugely used service and a hugely used investment. So at this point, I feel like a little bit too late. And the intent of them perhaps could be better served by giving people warning around the fact that there could be haram things in cryptocurrency or to take precautions because not everything is safe. But to go for this, you know, it makes them come across as out of touch and then people just sidestep and ignore it. Yeah, I do find that generally in the modern day and age, there is a clash of what you could say traditional scholarship and scholarship that is... I don't like using the word modern in a sense, but in the sense that they've embraced aspects of technology and sociology and other sides of scientific disciplines or traditional scholarship might not have really dipped its fingers in yet. But I do think that there will always be ikhtilaf amongst the scholars. And as you said, Ibrahim, we've got to respect that and we've got to accept that scholars are going to disagree and disagree. And there are times when we as people just need to pick which scholars that we follow and just kind of trust their judgment and also think about things ourselves. So think about both sides of the story, see which argument you resonate the most with, and then go with the scholar you trust. And inshallah, that will be the right decision for you. Mohammed, did you have any closing thoughts on that? No, I think I, I agree with all the sentiment that was, that was mentioned. Great. Moving on to our final story of the day, Ibrahim, why don't you run yep. us through this? So Shell is moving its headquarters from Amsterdam, uh, from Holland, to the UK. I mean, I'm not sure it's as big a signal as perhaps we might make it out, because Shell in particular has quite a complicated structure, where it's got a dual class of shares. It's known as a Royal Dutch Shell company. And to simplify things, because it's been coming under a lot of flack from activist investors at the moment, so investors who invest and take a decent uh, stake, and then are very vocal AGMs and very vocal to the management. What it's trying to do is just clean up its entire structure. So it's going to have one class of shares, keep it quite simple, get rid of the Royal Dutch and just be the Shell company. And they want to do this as they limber up ahead, you know, for the next 20, 30 years where we are going to be moving away from oil, uh, which right now is really high level prices. So it's making a lot of money, but they know this is not the future. And so they have to go through this massive change. A lot of these very same companies are going to be investing in climate energies, so climate-friendly energy sources, because that's their business, right? Energy. So my sense is, you know, some people have said that this is a great signal for Brexit and what have you. I think this is more just an internal shell-related thing. But it is a good signal that the UK can still achieve that, right? That people can still view large companies like Shell Cancel view the UK as a potential home for the future. So it's not all doom and gloom. So Mohammed, a lot of people have been viewing this move 
of Shell to the UK, well, a lot of ministers and particular people from the government have been hailing it as a sign that Brexit is really working for Britain. What is your thoughts on that statement? You know, originally, I think I was quite against Brexit for personal reasons. Example, traveling freely throughout Europe. But more and more, I'm seeing actually Brexit as kind of a good thing. And it's kind of given the, the UK kind of its sovereignty back. And I've actually almost, you know, kind of even disagree with the concept of the EU and having this one control power over all these very different states with very different cultures, very different economic backgrounds. And it's not to say that, you know, these states cannot collaborate as sovereign states and they have to be under this one big umbrella. I mean, similar to what we were saying about, you know, perhaps that racism story where like, it's not about all full assimilation where we all become the same. It's about just respecting each other's cultures and making sure that there is mutual respect between them, having your own kind of tribe and culture and, and identity as well. So I think it's kind of a good thing and it means the UK can set its own laws, it means the UK can set its own national wages and deal with its own problems without having to pass it by Brussels first, for example. I think maybe that shell is, is a good example of that. And that's not to say that, you know, I think for the everyday person, perhaps was even against Brexit, why was he against it? Obviously the unity, but also, you know, things like travel, which we've maybe lost, but that doesn't mean it can be renegotiated and us get back. I think everybody wants open travel. And we can do that as a sovereign country without having to be part of a, a broader mandate called the EU. So um, I've actually kind of moved sides and actually quite like Brexit now. Really? Okay, okay. What are your thoughts, Ibrahim? Do you think Brexit has been working for Britain? I would obviously rather it didn't happen. I think that we are where we are and we just need to make the best of it. So my perspective is probably, I'm like 50-50. I, I almost feel like it's not worth been thinking about because it's a uh, this happened this happened it happened and nothing yeah. can be done about it fair point one of the reasons that i think that ministers have been hailing this move as a win for brexit is because what i feel is that public sentiment has been very negative overall at boris johnson's progress um, with securing good trade deals we know that when he went to america he didn't really come back with anything decent and as far as i know there's nothing really been sorted out with China or any other major trade regions either. I think there was some progress with India, but other than that, nothing big has happened. So this is the first kind of, you could say, decent win that basically post-Brexit UK has got. And on that, I think ministers and the government generally have to make a show of it to show people that, look, it is working, be patient and be more positive about this, because I still feel that public sentiment and generally amongst the younger generations, I would say, is very negative overall over Brexit. And despite I completely agree with you, Ibrahim, that it's happened and like we need to just get over it and move on, I feel like many people haven't done that and they still can't get over that. Yeah. So I feel this is a PR move as well as obviously being a decent win for the UK, but it is also being done as a PR move to highlight the UK's success in one aspect and to push sway public sentiment, of course. Any closing comments, guys? I mean, uh, wages may be rising, but so is uh, the cost of everything else. So invest your money because that's the only way you'll be able to survive the next few years. I completely and wholly echo with that sentiment. You guys know where to go to get your investing information. We at IFG have loads of articles and lots of videos and our podcasts and our social media pages with lots of entertaining and fun financial information, which is not financial advice. <laughs> Always have to caveat it with that. And with that, let's conclude today's episode. Jazakallah khairan guys for joining us again for another episode. And inshallah, we'll see you next time. Thanks guys. Assalamu alaikum. Assalamu alaikum.
If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.